You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the After the Episode with Ashley, Joe, Christiana, and ALB, your host. How is everybody doing? That's you guys. Oh, that's us. That's us. I thought you were talking about the listeners. I'm like, oh, oh are we oh. expecting them, them yeah. to answer? And okay. waiting. And waiting. So who, what episode is this and who are we discussing what episodes are we discussing? I know you have some stuff together. AJB, take it away. We have lots that we are discussing today. Episode 94, Mike Govoni, son of a defrocked Catholic priest, finds an unorthodox approach to recovery from addiction and childhood trauma. Amazing episode. Episode 95, Craig Pothier, one Canadian's journey with alcoholism from a small town of a thousand to a city of millions. Episode 97, Adam Fout, how a prayer helped an atheist find recovery from substance use and binge eating. And lastly, episode 98, Charles M. Henderson Jr. from heroin to Harvard, how a young black boy raised in the projects, made it to the most elite university in America. So lots. Oh, just that? Just that. (laughs) Just that? Oh, okay. All right. Well, I mean, gosh, made it sound like we were, you know, going to be out of here in like 10 minutes. (laughs) That was a great read through. And as you guys can see, we have added uh, two more episodes to the after the episode. And you would now know that we have added another type of episode called Ask the Expert, which we're all... ATE, Ask the Expert. Get it? After the episode? After the episode, we're keeping both ATEs. So we want to make room for all this amazing content while uh, being able to keep up a production schedule over on our end. So we're jamming for after the episodes into one after... We're jamming four episodes into one after the episode. There, that's the way to say it. All right, let's get into it. All right, so Mike Gavoni is the first one that we're reviewing. Episode 94, just an amazing episode. There's so much that I could have picked from this one, but the clip that I pulled is a clip where he's talking about the fact that he was taken from his mother at a very young age. So here is Mike and Ashley. That's trauma. You know, you didn't you didn't have someone there to hold you and to acknowledge you and to comfort you and to help support your social engagement system. And in fact, a mother is the child's regulator from zero to 18 or 24 months that the mother regulates the, the child's nervous system. And I, I sit here today in Sedona, Arizona with my mom. You know, she's here and I'm supporting her on her healing journey. We can get into that if you want later. And I, 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 you know, of course, I have my own practitioners that I work with. And I said to my therapist not too long ago, I said, I said, I didn't have a chance. You know, my, my mother's 60 years old and she's still dysregulated. How did I ever have a chance? And I'm not saying this is a victim. Um, yes, there is a part of me that grieves that, but I didn't have a chance. So if you didn't have attunement and someone there to support you and love you and acknowledge you and all that stuff, that can be traumatizing. So, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> selfishly, I 
go immediately to myself. And as the mother is the regulator in the first 18 months, I don't know if you both think about it from a motherhood perspective, but I'm like, oh my God, uh, did I do enough? Did I do it right? Did I, did I comfort them enough? Was, you know, was sleep training bad, you know, like all the things and, and to think, so that's me from the perspective of, granted, I had twins, so it was a little chaotic. Uh, but that's me from the perspective of having been there, right? Worrying about those things to the, uh, you know, and knowing how much this baby needs its mom. I can't even imagine not having that at all. Like there's, there's the normal motherhood of worrying about if you're doing enough, if you're doing it right, blah, blah. And then there's not being there at all. And I just, I truly can't imagine that. I think there's two perspectives. There's the perspective of if you're a mom and I'm like, holy crap, did I mess up with my kids? Totally. But then there's also the perspective of what happens to you as a young, young, young child can change the trajectory of your life oh, yeah. forever. Yep. Yeah. So there's this, you know, in neuroscience, um, things that fire together, wire together, right? And so neural pathways are constantly being forged as you're, you know, when you're little and, you know, parenting books and, and other experts on, on childhood rearing talk a lot about how the voice, you know, what we say to them with the words that we use and the things that we say to them about them are how they will speak to themselves, right? Over time. And all of that stuff, all of that wiring is really important. They actually say the most important is the first four years and mine are four. So <laughs> the jury's in. Um, so, so, uh, you know, but it's, you know, it definitely affects those, those things absolutely affect and, and something of that nature, just not having that person, the absence of that person is, is huge. I didn't quite catch where he went or who was standing in at that point. If he was, if it was just his dad or his dad. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's, and he talks about attunement and that, you know, attunement meaning, the ability to really see see someone, right? Connect with them and that attunement. And, you know, typically it's the mom that's doing that. And and it doesn't sound to me like it was a situation where his father was very attuned to him, if I had to guess. That's a judgment from, you know, many years and miles away. But I, if I had to guess. From what he had said earlier in the episode, his dad, in fact, was not attuned into yeah. what him and his, I think his older sister needed. Yeah. And and so that's something that was definitely missing. It's it's interesting because my mind goes two separate things. Number one, I still at this point of recording have not had my my baby yet. So so many fun things to think about, you know. It's like pressures on man. But I think what I experienced, I, I can't remember, you know, as some people can remember their first memories. I can't really remember mine. Uh, even up to like, I think I remember a few things at like three and four, but I, I felt like with, when I was thinking about it kind of selfishly, like you were saying, it's like, I didn't, I felt like the attunement that I didn't get from like four to eight was, I, I, I as I'm stumbling over my words, th that affected me. I felt like almost not in the same way because you have different needs from four to eight than you do, you know, as a, as a baby, you're, you're completely helpless, completely dependent. And, and there are different things that are happening in the body, but 
I felt like I could relate to what he was saying, where I felt like there was, I was not set up for success as an independent person to be able to go out and be confident and be functional and think in a certain way and move and react in a certain way, because there was literally nothing being given from that time on. And like you were saying, Ashley, like if it was happening from, you know, four to eight, where you actually start to gain some independence and you can think and do things for yourself, you can say you're hungry, you can go into the cabinet and find food or put on your own clothes or ask for help or say this hurts, then how much more detrimental would it be when you can't? When you can't, exactly. Yeah. You know, I think it's, you know, why is this important, right? Why is this important to the conversation of recovery? And the converse, it's important to the conversation of recovery because sometimes it's helpful to see that you weren't set up for success and not by any fault per se. You know, we're all, I can, I can see personally, I can see how, you know, wounds that aren't healed as a parent affect children, whether you want them to or not. And, you know, most of us don't want them to, but, you know, there are wounds. We can't, you know, if they're not healed, they're not healed. We're, we're just people. And the, the being able to see, you know, I wasn't set up for success or, you know, my brain is wired differently or understanding those things. It's not an excuse, but it is, it does help you see, you know, that you didn't, it wasn't like you were handed the golden goose and you, and you threw it away. You you really had a hard road ahead of you because of these things. Your brain was wired differently and that caused you to seek comfort in different ways. And I think that can sometimes be helpful in the feelings around what's wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm, you know, not healable, you know, all those things that we tell ourselves. And so I think, so, so why that matters is really people's ability to be able to use it as information, right? As data in fact finding as, and it can lead you to new healing. Absolutely. That's, and that's exactly what happened to me when I entered therapy, because my conversation, my, I guess my internal narrative went from, you know, when people would ask, like, you know, you just start to meet friends and they'll ask you like, well, how was your past? And and my, my, I guess, narrative was, well, I mean, you know, it was a little tough, but my, my mom was just real tough on us. She was just kind of mean to us and not really there where that never made sense in my mind. I could never connect it with why I felt so broken and why I felt like I could not get ahead in certain ways emotionally. And I had no answer and I really wanted that answer. So when I started therapy and I started learning terminology, learning what happened and putting names to things, it actually empowered me to move forward. And it it actually empowered me to stop being a victim because I didn't want to stay stuck in that victim mentality. But it's like when you don't know what something is or even what the hell ha- like really happened to you because you don't know how to explore it, you're just stuck in this wash spin cycle. And so I went from, you know, just wanting to help myself to now I, I it's almost like it's attracting. Like I've, I've had numerous people come up and be like, I'm so inspired by the work that you've done. And, and can you tell me how you got started and just wanting to hear more about it? Cause they're seeing the changes and even just how I speak and how I talk about things. And it's just, it's, it's, it's from a very different perspective. It's from an empowered perspective where, you know, even, even if a trigger comes up, it's like, oh, we, the, there's ways to move through this. It's fine. It's going to be okay. 
it's also valuable in interpersonal relationships, right? Because if I am dating or I'm married or, you know, I'm interacting closely with someone and I know that they didn't have that attunement when they were young. I just, I just have happened to have that information. And I see at some point something that some struggle that reflects that. I have context and context is everything. I always, you know, context is everything. There are lots of things about my husband that, you know, things that super annoying, you know, like the things that annoy you about, about your person. And it was so interesting over the years as I, you know, traveled back to where he grew up and I, you know, spent more time in his family home or his parents, I started to understand more of the things that annoyed me in context. Actually, one one very interesting thing, my husband's family, Jehovah's Witness, and I had no experience with that at all, um, other than some mean pranks when they came to the door. And so, and so I didn't know anything about that. One of the things that in the, in the, that culture is that you can, that basically there's, there are a lot of consequences to holding secrets and getting in trouble. There's a lot of getting in trouble. And if you get in trouble, it can be very public and embarrassing. So that that's just the, you know, that's kind of the overview. And my husband would break you know, the, the, um, the ironing thing, what do you call it? Ironing board. Ironing board. Thank you. My husband, you know, once broke the ironing board and like took it and hid it somewhere. And I was like, where's the ironing board? Blah, blah, blah. And this is early when we were dating and I, I found it and I'm like, you broke it. Why didn't you just tell me what's this is so weird. And I would, and there, there were other things like that where basically in his head, he was going to buy an ironing board to replace it before I could find it. And he would do all these things that, that to, to try to not have the confrontation to quote unquote, get in trouble with me. And I was like, I'm on your team. What are you doing? And it drove me nuts. And I realized that he grew up in a culture where it was, you were better off trying to undo the thing and fix it before anyone found out than to say, oh my gosh, I did this. Can I have, like, it was more important to not get in trouble, basically. I didn't grow up like that. So to me, it was the weirdest thing. But once I understood his context of how he grew up, that this was getting in trouble was a really big deal. It was, it could be very public. There were very public experiences, et cetera. I was like, oh, that's why. And so we were able to work through some of that stuff. And he, and, and now it's non-existent. But it was really interesting to understand, oh, some of that stuff you went through a childhood, it comes out today in ways that I wouldn't connect those dots, but it's really valuable information, especially in a marriage so that you can work through those things and have compassion. You know, now I have compassion for like how scary that would be as a little kid and, you know, publicly and whatever I had, I mean, just not my experience. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it's interesting you seeing that context now after the fact, it'd be unique to talk to your husband and find out, does he see that looking back now too? Or was the behavior just so subconscious on his end that he didn't even realize what he was doing? No, he did not realize what he was doing. He did. I would, what ended up happening was I would ask all these questions about his childhood growing up because I was very curious about the job of his Jehovah's Witness thing. And I know it didn't end well, uh, like for him, like he was thrown out and, um, or whatever. And 
so I would ask questions and he would explain scenarios where like if I am holding and of course there's going to be Jehovah's Witnesses out there that are going to tell us this is wrong. So I apologize if I muck this up. But from my understanding, if Susie does something very sinful and I know that Susie has done that, I am as liable as Susie is if I do not tell the elders. And Susie, whatever she did, has to tell the elders. And so there's a lot that goes on like that. You can't like the secret keeping piece and it needs, there can, sometimes we'll ask for like public apologies at the church in front of the entire congregation and things like that. There were a lot of incentives not to get caught, not to get in trouble because it was, it could be very public from my understanding. Again, this is, you know, this is a very specific place and time. So I, you know, I don't know much, but when he started telling me those stories about getting in trouble and that kind of thing and and how people basically weren't on the same team. Because if I know Susie's secret, I'm as liable as Susie, but I didn't do it. Right. So I have the I I now have the incentive to snitch on Susie. So we aren't on the same team. And so it so it actually for me, but you know, this is stuff I think about regularly. But for me, I was like, oh, you this this stuff doesn't compute. And I, I started to notice things like that. And then we started to have those conversations and I would point that out. I said, why are you scared to get in trouble? You know, and he's like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, we, we would talk about it and we talked to, you know, we spent, our therapist would talk about how he heard in me, his, you know, his mom and I have similarities and how like when, when I, we would talk about functional things, he would hear his mom and he, he would have a mom reaction to me, like a teenager reaction to me. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> like I just asked you if you have health insurance and suddenly you're being weird. I don't know what's happening. And we, so we did a lot of work around that. I think um, we talk about it in our episode about how the therapist asks him, the therapist does a, a, with us says, Ashley, say something that you think is going to elicit a response that will elicit the, you know, that will elicit the response that you are struggling with. So I say to him this thing and he responds with this whole thing. And no, I'm sorry. I say to him this thing. She asks him, what did you hear Ashley say? And he comes out with something that is so not what I said. And there's a third person there, this woman, this, our therapist listening. And she's like, honey, that's not what Ashley said. And so instead of me saying it, which wasn't helpful because he didn't believe me, she says it. And then we get to have the conversation where I have taken the place of mom and I'm getting mom reactions. Hi, you know, those we're not on the same team. I'm going to get in trouble. She thinks I'm, you know, not stepping up to the, whatever it is. And so we were able to work through that because I was doing things that triggered mom. And I, that's pretty normal and understandable given who I am. So I get that, but it was so helpful to have that context, to know what his growing up was like, because it gave me a compassion I would not have had. Well, and I think that shows how much those childhood experiences can impact us even into our adulthood. And most of the time we don't know, we're not aware of it. And so And Mike had a lot of adverse childhood experiences in his stories. Now, Craig, the next, the next episode, Craig had like a a happy, amazing dad who built an ice rink for him, who was doing all of these things, but he still had a classic case of alcoholism. And the 
the piece that I wanted to pull from his episode was actually when, when Craig talks about his progression of his alcoholism. And here is Ashley and Craig's conversation. Like, you know, it wasn't it was, working. It wasn't going to end well <laughs> if I continued this habit. Right. Okay. Okay. Got it. But I mean, the habit kept going and it like started on Mondays, started having anxiety and having a drink for lunch. Then Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, then it became an everyday thing. Then it became a thing of, wow, I need like, I can't even make it to noon. I need to have a drink at whenever the bar opens, I got to be there and have my screwdriver. And before you knew it, I was beating the bartenders to their job. And like, why, why not just buy it? Why are you paying all that money? Well, Drinking, yeah, for me, I had this rule like drinking at home. Okay, that was, there, it was okay. like that would be a really bad thing. Okay, still, still some rules we're following. Okay, still some rules they would quickly be broken, though. Yeah, uh, soon enough, I would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, needing a drink, having too much anxiety. Waking up in the morning, I'm like, fuck it, I'm having another drink. Right, I saw a therapist in New York City about my drinking. And that was like, okay, I'm, I'm like, I'm struggling to keep this under control, but a therapist is all I need. Right. Yeah, um, obviously this, this will fix me. I'll be good. But going to the therapist, it was like, I'm not coming. I, I was very straight with the therapist. I'm not here to quit alcohol. Yeah. I'm here to moderate. Yeah. Um, you're going to help me moderate. I love it. It's so good. There's so many pieces. Um, Craig, so look, alcoholism, right? It, it's the great equalizer. It affects people from all walks of life, with you know, color, creed, whatever, whatever you have, it will, it, it, you know, it can affect you, and it's very genetic. And so, yeah, he had. Uh, we say that environment. No, we say genetics load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. But the environment doesn't need to be bad to pull the trigger. It could be that you experience anxiety and you're using alcohol to help as your medicine to help with that. You really like the way alcohol makes you feel. Alcohol is very addictive. Alcohol is very addictive. Let me say that again. Alcohol is very addictive. And alcohol kills more people today, today than all other drugs combined, including opiates. So crazy. Wow including opiates. So we do, we talk a lot about the, you know, I always laugh, like the opiate, the opiate crisis is real. It's a problem. We talk about it a lot. It's very scary. Alcohol still kills more people. And he has a classic case of alcoholism of, you know, the rules, I'm going to go to the bar. I won't drink at home. I'll drink in the morning, but if I buy it from the bar, AKA I pay too much for it, then it's not alcoholism. And, you know, I think, even at the point where he wants help, it's like, I want to moderate. I don't want to give up the alcohol. I want to go back. But once you cross that invisible line, you know, are there some people in the world that are able to moderate? Yeah, there are. I won't lie to you, but you're probably not one of them if you're listening to this. Like it's un- it's unlikely. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely in my experience from what I've watched and, you know, gone through and, and seen with other people. And there's this invisible line that you cross pretty tough, pretty tough to go back after that. And, um, he, you know, he's describing that process, the process of tolerance of withdrawal, right. 
of dependence, all all very uh, DSM-5 terminology that you see in the criteria for alcoholism. And he's describing those things. And it's, you know, I'm glad he had a normal or whatever, not, you know, normal is a bad word, but uneventful childhood, because what that shows us is that, yes, you know, you may have had a, a gnarly childhood and that absolutely plays a part, but it isn't the whole story. It isn't the whole story. Genetics are a huge part of this story. And the thing that I loved about hearing specifically this clip from Craig is we walk into the rooms and we feel like when we first step into the rooms, like we are special, like nobody else has our story. And then all of a sudden people start saying things like Craig said, and you just see like hands going up around the room. You see people laughing like, oh my goodness, how many of us hid stuff in our laundry basket or wouldn't do this? All the rules that we've created for ourselves. And it's really, really weird, but there is comfort in that. Because when I step into the rooms thinking I'm the only one who hit a six pack under my bed and covered it with a sheet, I feel crazy. And when I hear other people say that, I realize I'm not actually crazy. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. 100% of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder, love me some green tea, golden grind turmeric latte blend, and prana chai original blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The turmeric latte blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with the cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. It's so, I was actually having a conversation with um, a mother yesterday and we were talking about, you know, I'm I'm going to help their family find treatment. I'm going to talk to this young man. And um, she was like, well, you know, he doesn't know you. And I said, yes, he doesn't know me, but here's the deal. I'm going to tell him about the things he's thinking that he has never told anyone. And that will show my credibility because I know what you're thinking. I know those thoughts you have that you don't even realize are are abnormal and you've never said to anyone. And that's how we, those are the thoughts you're talking about, about connecting because I lived alone and hid my bottles <laughs> from yourself. And then you get pissed because you can't find them. I can't because you're drunk. And like, 
so didn't make any sense. I'm in this house by myself in Northern Arizona and I'm literally hiding wine bottles, but like there's no one to hide it from. It's just ridiculous, right? But I'm doing, interestingly, I'm also doing, I'm putting them in my sheets. I'm doing the same things I did as a kid with alcohol, right? So, you know, I, that was a, that was like, you know, instinctual. Those were instinctual things that were wired into my brain that when I'm consuming alcohol and when it's in my house, I'm like a, you know, I'm like a squirrel with a nut. Like this is, I, my just, I just know what to do with it. Right. I just hide it. And so when you talk about that and you hear that other people do that and they have that instinct, whatever that weird instinct is, like it's, it is a relief. It is, it is a relief to know that you, you know, cause I thought I was, I thought, I mean, I thought there was, I was needed serious psychiatric, you know, help situation. I mean, not that, you know, I, I'm sure that's debatable for some people in my life, but I mean, I, I, you know, I was like, oh, it's alcoholism. Like, oh, thank God. I was worried it was, you know, I was worried it was some other things and no, those are just alcoholic thoughts. Absolutely. And I think so many people could relate to that element of Craig's story. So yeah. anything else on that or should we move on to the next one? Let's go. Let's let's keep going. All right. So Adam, Adam Fout, another amazing, excellent story. And the piece that I picked from Adam's story is when he's actually talking about how, how mental health and alcoholism addiction can go hand in hand. And so the specific clip, he's talking about how at one point in time, he decided to take himself off of medication. So we'll tune in there and then we'll have the discussion about it. The deep depression that led me to a suicide attempt is preferable to sweating too much. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so I come, right, exactly. So I come off of it and, you know, really for the next eight years of sobriety, <laughs> I am eight depressed. <laughs> oh, oh, it's just, it's just, we're just such an amazing bunch. Okay, eight years, yeah. Yeah, and but I don't realize it because I am so deep in the program. Right. You know, and I'm carrying the message every week, and I'm working with tons of sponsees, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I don't realize how irritable I really am. I don't realize how, you know, sad I really am. And it isn't until I have a, I lose my job, basically, through no fault of my own. And it's a job I've been working at at five years. It's my first big boy job. Um, the place basically shuts down and everyone gets let go. And I finally am like, holy crap, you know, I am depressed and I have to do something about this. So I picked that clip because I personally related to the mental health aspect and how being an alcoholic personally, I also struggle with depression and anxiety and I can't just focus on one or the other. It has to be a balance of both. And so what I heard Adam saying when he was connecting with you, Ashley, is he kind of got to a point in his recovery where he was doing well in recovery. So he just decided like, screw it. The mental health doesn't really matter. I don't need to take that. I don't need to focus on that. And spent eight years that way, not really paying, not paying attention to it really. Yeah. That part made me laugh because it it, it made me laugh because it's like, that's what, it's such a common 
thing and you're expecting them, you're expecting someone to be like, yeah, I've spent six months. It was terrible. It's like, no, I, I really put in time, you know, I really made sure that this was, (laughs) this experiment was not working out well. We really, you know, ran it into the ground. Yeah. I mean, that's something I've experienced. It's, it's very common for people who struggle with mental health stuff to want to take themselves off the medication side effects, not wanting to be on medication. I had a period of time, um, where I, cause I struggle, <laughs> I struggle with, um, with depression, you know, and anxiety, but really bad clinical depression. Uh, I have none of the highs that people talk about. I'm like, wow, that sounds way better. But anyway, they, uh, so I, you know, I had been on medication for it and, and, uh, and so, you know, been on medication for, for that. And I think that I'm better so I can stop taking it. Right. Because I don't want to be on the medication, but I'm better. (laughs) I'm better because I'm taking the medication, right? Like I'm, so I come off of the medication and it's like this now I feel really dysregulated, but we don't want to be, you know, I didn't want to be a person who was on medication or I didn't want, you know, that I've already felt like I was, you know, coming to a club I didn't want to belong to of, you know, recovering people. Like, why do I have to add in this other thing? And the reality is that I have not to date met a person who identifies as an alcoholic who hasn't struggled with depression and anxiety. So when people separate for me. So, you know, in the field, they do separate substance use disorder and mental health. I personally think that is the most ridiculous thing. It's like separating dentistry from healthcare. Like your teeth are in your head. You know, you, it, it, it's, it's in your mouth where you're, if you have a tongue problem, you're going to, you know, go to an ear, nose and throat. But if right next door you have a teeth problem, nope, that's dentistry, not covered. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So it's, it, for me, it's very much the same thing. Like why would substance use disorder is a reaction to feeling a certain way, right? It isn't, it's really the response, the remedy. So I, 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 you know, the mental health thing is so important to talk about, so important for all of us to be aware of. And and, and I, I'm really excited because it's a huge part of the conversation now um, since COVID. So I'm glad it's been ushered in. And with depression, the other thing that he brought up for me was that depression, when you're sober a long time, for my experience is it sneaks its way in, right? It wasn't like, I'm just so much more functional. You know, when I was depressed back when I was using or early sobriety, I didn't get out of bed, right? Like did not get out of bed. Maybe I took my, got my dog, you know, my dog would make it so I would get out of the house to help him go to the bathroom. But other than that, it was like the legit depression. Nothing was happening. I don't have, I can't do that now. (laughs) Like that's not the way things work. Even if I wanted to be that depressed, my children would, remove me from my bed. You know, it's just like, it's literally not possible. So if I'm, that'll happen like one time before, you know, all my recovery folks would come in and peel me out and that kind of thing. So it's just, it's a whole different, I think as we get older, sober, longer, our lives change, our mental health stuff looks different. And so we might not take it as seriously as it's happening because it doesn't, look the way it used to. It's, I'm not, not functioning. I'm just not high functioning or for me. And I think it's important that we realize that recovery is about feeling good. It's not about just being abstinent. If all you are is abstinent, you're missing out on a big piece of it. Well, and I think an important part about what you said there is 
think of somebody early in recovery, just thinking of myself, I stopped drinking. If that was the only problem, then I would have been better. But I also had significant clinical depression and significant anxiety. So honestly, that first, God, first 90 days of sobriety freaking sucked. Sometimes it's worse, right? Because that's the remedy. You're taking away the, the remedy. Right. But that's why I think the conversation about mental health and how it connects to all of this and is intertwined, not two separate things, is so important. Because if you believe that substance use disorder is just a separate issue, then removing the substance should solve the problem. And it it doesn't. And that's why things like therapy and, and doing the work and putting in the time are so, so important. If all you stop drinking and you only go those first seven days, you're going to think, wow, sobriety freaking sucks. Totally. Oh, you sub removing the substances reveals the problem. It doesn't take, you know, I mean, that's just, that's just, that's step one. That's just the beginning, you know, then you're left with you, 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 you take away the alcohol, you're left with the alcoholic, right? Like you're, you're left with what's going on in your head, the, the K-fuck radio that's turned up all the way and going on. Like it doesn't go away. That's the thing you were trying to drown out. And uh, yeah, I, you know, if someone, I really truly believe that, that it is a, a disservice that we separate those two things. And I hope to see in my lifetime that we, really, really work on combining um, substance use disorder and mental health. It's just ridiculous. And I think, like you said earlier, you know, COVID's really accelerated a lot of stuff and, you know, alcohol and substance use disorder is, is categorized, right, as a disease. And so disease is chronic, progressive, and fatal. And so the progression is something that I know I've shared, I've really seen in so many people, especially with COVID, and even in myself with some of the mental health things that I've struggled, I saw the progression of it big time. It just accelerated it. You know, you're hearing more people getting divorces, more people getting help, unfortunately, more people completing suicide, not knowing that there's help out there. Um, and we'll put the suicide hotline uh, number in our show notes. I long for the day when and I feel like we're getting there, but I long for the day when people can talk about this without shame and share about their, their clinical depression, share about how bad their anxiety is eating them up, share about their substance use disorders, or do I take this? Do I not? Even with, you know, conversations that I, I'm starting to hear now that I'm in mom circles with postpartum depression, looking out for it, watching out for it. What does it look like? There's so much shame surrounding it. And I just love that this, this conversation and specifically from this clip in general, we can normalize it more and, and bring it to the forefront and, and say, Hey, there's no shame in continuing your medication. If you need your medication and if you're working with somebody to help you and the medication is helping you, there is no shame in this. You are loved. You are amazing. This is something that you're struggling with. There's nothing wrong with you, right? You're, you're, you're helping yourself. You're treating yourself. You're, you're able to live, like you were saying, Ashley, a good life. You know, you, you should be enjoying your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whatever you need to do within reason in order to help yourself, there should be no shame around that. So I'm excited for the progression of this conversation. You know, just what will it look like years from now? Will people have less shame about it? I hope so.
And we remove shame by continuing to have conversations like this, by continuing to share stories like Adam's stories, like Ashley's stories, by talking about these things and having this conversation. I think that's how we can take a a small part in making a really big change. And that's a beautiful thing. So next story, Charles Henderson. Ashley, he was a friend of your father. And so the clip that I pulled uh, was actually from the point in Charles' story where he talks about going from being a heroin addict to being accepted in the most elite university, Harvard, and where he actually lies to your father about doing drugs or ever doing heroin. And so here is that point in your discussion with Charles. Peter came up at the end of the class and complimented me. He said, Charles, I'm just curious. Have you ever been on drugs or in a drug program? Now, this is the first month, Ashley. I don't know this. Yeah. I know who he is, but I don't know him. I don't trust him. Yeah. Right. There, yeah. there are people that know my story, but those are people that I'm close to after I get to know right. you. And I'm thinking, there's no way I'm going to tell him. And these people yeah. are not going to know what my He probably should have led with why he was asking. <laughs> right. <laughs> that could have helped. <laughs> it could have helped a lot because yeah. after I said, no, why do you ask? Then he told me about his sister who was a heroin addict. And I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And he, he had nothing to hide. He, it was, he felt no shame, no embarrassment. And that kind of hit me, too, like. This is not something that people talk about to people they don't really know, right? I, right? I wasn't at that level. I could once I got to know Lolis, I could tell him my story or or Kim Lou, I could tell her my story or you know, I could get to know a person and I would share it with them, but not people I didn't know. And I walked away from that just I couldn't shake it. It was in my mind like, why did I lie? Why why did I lie? Why did I lie? And for the for the rest of the two years there, every time I would see Peter, I would be reminded of this lie. And then I couldn't say I lied because who wants, no one wants to admit I'm a liar. You can't believe anything I say. <laughs> I'm a drug addict and a liar. Oh, my God. So it wasn't until the reunion five years later that. I went to him and I knew I was going to see him and I knew I was going to tell him. I was like, I got to get this off my chest here. (laughs) So uh, I just love, he's great. Yeah. I, so, you know, I think that was in the nineties because that's when Peter was there and, and we lived in Cambridge and, you know, I don't think that, I think Peter was ahead of his time in, in the sense of talking about that so openly and asking, asking, you know, a question. I, I don't know. I, I laughed just thinking, picturing Peter, like, just walking up there like, hey, did you do drugs? <laughs> like, like, yeah, no shit. He's not going to say yes. But I think it's really a conversation around who we think people are, like what we think people are based on where they come from, based on, uh, you know, where we see them, what we think about them, you know, all of the perception things where we decide that someone's going to think a certain thing about us. And we try to control that narrative instead of being our authentic self. And in, in the rest of that episode, Charles and I talk about how Peter, when I was a kid, used to tell me about this or when I, I think I was a teenager, we used to tell me about this guy who he went to Harvard with who 
um, was a heroin addict and got himself into Harvard and how that was really inspiring to me because I thought, wow, there's someone like me that, that made it, you know, and, you know, made it is, that's a whole other story, right. Of like how we define success, but for, for the purposes of this conversation, you know, his story was told to me and I was, that was inspiring because someone like me went there and I put my father in a different category, the same way he put my father in a different category. But his daughter, right, this man's daughter was in that category and needed someone like Charles to show that it was okay, you know, that you could do that, that people would talk about it, that it was, you know, um, that you could be in those circles. And it was just interesting how, how all of that is wrapped around what we believe about one another based on you know, things we were born into. You brought up a key word though, Ashley, when you said authentic, you said he was being his authentic self. And this, I would say is probably one of the top five things I hear in the rooms is how do I be authentic in my recovery without exposing too much or without saying too much? What do I share? Who do I share it with? What are they going to think? That's one of the top conversations that I hear people talking about. And really what I hear them often asking in their head, maybe if they don't even know they're asking it is, is this a safe place to share? Or is this a safe person to share that information with? Yeah, I think... You know, it takes time in the beginning. When it, when I first got sober, I was 19, so I had nothing going on. And um, so I was basically like, hi, I'm sober. I'm Ashley. I'm in AA. I'm in that, but this is what I do. I did drugs. You know, like there was nothing else going on. I didn't have anything else to talk about. So, so it was just like a walking billboard, like literally would, oh, hi, you're at the gas station. You're going to give me gas. My name's Ashley. I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, you know, it was just like, I led with it. Okay. And to the point where I look back, I'm like, Oh my God. And I don't lead with it anymore. Cause I, I feel like there's a lot of other stuff that I want to lead with today because I've developed those things. And I think when you're first getting sober, it kind of depends. Like maybe you're someone who didn't ruin their whole life and, and was able to get a hold of things before then. I don't know. I don't, that's not my situation, but those people may still have a lot to lead with, or you may be early in recovery and like, well, I just, you know, burnt that shit down behind me. So here I am with my, you know, this is, this is my claim to fame right now. And you may want to share that. And so I, I think the best thing to do is to go slowly, share slowly, feel things out. But in the meetings, right, those are sa- the support group meetings. Those are safe places, that those are that is a safe place to share people who understand those are safe places to share and i learned by you know there's a saying in aa go stick with the winners you know if you want what they have do what they do and so i started to pay attention to how other you know when we would spend time out and doing things in recovery how did they talk about it what kind of things how did they present their authentic selves and being authentic does not mean that I have to tell you everything about myself, which I didn't know because I went to a gazillion treatment centers and that's all we did, right? So I get out of treatment after being in treatment for, you know, a hundred years and basically being raised in therapy treatment. And so I don't know how to have a normal conversation, literally. Like I literally am like, 
you know, people are like, how are you? I'm like, well, I'm feeling like my inner child. Like, I just don't, I just go right into it, right? Like, there's just no, I don't know how to have... Um, Blowing people's minds. <laughs> yeah, like there's no casual combo. So paying attention to how other people who you relate to or you want to relate to handle those conversations, how they are authentic in their life, that is the best way to figure it out over time, in my experience, paying attention. What does this person do? How do they talk about? Do they talk about at work? Ask people, hey, do you tell people at work you're in recovery? You know, how do you tell people? How do you tell people, you know, where you went to high school when you went to eight high schools? You know, which is how do you how do you bring these things up without saying, oh, I was a drug addict when I was a kid. So I went to eight high schools. You don't have to say that. You, you know, there are ways to say that, but ask people. That's that's how you learn how to do it. Yeah. And I think you also need to know that your way may not be the same as theirs. So ask a lot of people and see what they have done and what they are doing and what they did at different points in their recovery, because it changes and morphs as you go too. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, you know, almost like a fact finding, like, what did you do? What did you do? Because some of that stuff is tricky with work or people ask you questions, maybe in an interview and you don't know how to respond especially if you're, you aren't, you know, I think it's, this is more of an issue if you aren't sober very long, right? Like, you know, now it, I don't, I mean, tell someone I'm sober 15 years, like I have a track record of not being drunk. And so, so there's, there's more confidence in that, right? So if I'm six months sober, a year sober, I am afraid, rightfully so, that people are going to be concerned that I would drink. That makes sense to me. So seeking out advice on how to talk about that, you don't have to lead with it. And, you know, you can say things like, I'm a person in long-term recovery. You don't need to say, hi, I'm six months sober. Um, you can say things like, you know, if you're trying to explain your past, yeah, I went through a rough period. You know, there are things that you can say that are still authentic, that are still true and allow you to live the life you want to lead. Mm -hmm. And one thing my therapist taught me when I was going through therapy was always go in with a plan. So have a plan for how you're going to answer those types of questions. If they do come up, it will give you the confidence if they do come up. And you're right, early in sobriety is when when most people are asking. That's a lot of what we've been seeing in online meetings lately is people coming in amidst COVID, returning to life and saying, what the heck is going on? I want help. That's why I'm here. Or like going back to... You know, I, the question I get a lot is... I got sober and my job requires me to wine and dine people or go to these events. And I used to be a big drinker and everybody knew that about me. Now I'm going back and I don't drink anymore, but I don't want to tell them I'm sober. What do I do? And, and, and my advice is always, nobody knows what's in your glass. Just remember that. Like we have this idea that they've, you know, that they have some sort of, you know, sniffing technology in their nose so that they know what alcohol or whatever substances in your glass. They don't know what's in your glass. I have literally been to an event where people were doing shots and I didn't want to deal with it. So that I had the um, bartender put water in the shot glass. I said, can you just put water in the shot glass? I don't want to talk about it. So like, I don't want to I just, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I was like, I'm not dealing with this right now. So I'm just saying there are lots of ways to get around things. And remember that nobody has any idea what's in your glass. And you can say you're on a diet. You can say you're allergic to that. You can say, I'm cutting back drinking in 2021. You can say my liver is taken around. You can say so many things and you will be amazed how many people will just say, okay, great. You know what? Moving on. Um, so I think... 
you know, the best, ask people what to do. And if you are going back into that situation, just remember, nobody has any idea. Have a glass in your hand, whatever it is, have your water, you know, the, the, get like some good seltzer and cranberry and lime, which is my go-to, right? Looks, it's delicious. It looks good. It looks like a, you know, a drink and move on with your life. Nobody cares. And, and that, that piece, you know, if they're, if they, if they care, heads up, if they care, if they really push on this, that's because they don't want to drink alone and they need to drink. (laughs) So the because some people don't want to drink alone, so they don't drink because you're not drinking. And then there's people who don't want to drink alone, but they need to drink. So they're pissed that you're not drinking. So that's about them. Love it. That's good advice. Anything else? I mean, that was, that was a great wrap up. I don't have anything to add. (laughs) No, I, anything else? I, I think that, did we, or were those all men? (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. Isn't that crazy? Um, We've, we've had so many men on so far for season three. It's, it's been amazing to be able to see. Yeah, I think, you know, my my wrap up, if you will, on this has, you know, I've been talking a lot with people who are working with a loved one who's struggling to get sober or thinks they might want to get sober or and I've been saying to a lot to them in my conversations, look, if drugs or alcohol are causing you a problem, then maybe it's a problem because people ask me, how do I know if I have a problem? And I say, is it is it causing you problems? And uh, it's really that simple to start, to get started. And if you have a loved one that's struggling um, and you're looking for answers, I highly recommend talking to someone who has, you know, if you are, if you want someone's advice, who's done this before, whatever this is, right. It's so important to find people who have experience in the thing that you're looking for. And I hear a lot of people spending time trying to figure it out themselves, but, and they're not alcoholic and they're trying to help someone. And I, what I find is that, you know, this is a a strange mental twist and it doesn't follow logic. So if you're trying to use logic to follow it, you will be very confused and disappointed. Highly recommend finding people who know about this, who've done it before, who know a friend who's done it before, whatever it is, and ask them what to do, how they did it. Get the advice from people who've done it before because it's not intuitive. Nobody is, you know, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to help a loved one with an addiction, guess what? That's okay because none of us were born with that skill. It's not in a, you know, this is a, a, a skill that's acquired under duress. Other than that, people don't know how to deal with it and that's okay. And it's really normal, really, really normal. So anyway, I just felt the need to share that given my recent conversations with people to, you know, understand that this just doesn't follow logic. It's just not going to follow logic. So try not to beat yourself up as you're trying to figure it out. And one of our next Ask the Experts is actually going to be with a well-known interventionist. So if you have questions that you would like Ashley to ask this interventionist during their discussion, you guys can email them to us at podcast at lionrock.life. Not situation-specific questions, but just questions for a well-known interventionist. I think that'd be awesome to tie in some of our listeners' questions to that discussion that Ashley will be having. Awesome. Well, thank you, Christiana and Ashley, Joe. I really appreciate you both and your input. And I love doing the little clips. That was awesome. And I don't even, what episode is this? 
99. All right, episode 99. We did this. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.